time no, <laughs> it was not not <laughs> sneaky enough. Too slow, too slow. Uh, I felt like I needed to do this because so many people are, are new. Like, I just need to say, this is my wife, Lindsay. We're married. This is not just like a, ni- a nice person I found to carry a stool up, you know? So anyway, I normally get to do this, but we get to do it together. So uh, it's funny because uh, this is like our first of legit Mother's Day. Like, London was in process last Mother's Day, kind of. But, but now she's like here. And so it's been really fun, like, just to have Mother's Day together. Like, she decided, hey, and set, like, for a Mother's Day gift, John and Lindsay, I'm going to wake up an hour early and just cry. <laughs> so she's somewhere in this building. We don't even know. <laughs> we just put her over there. Uh, but it's been good. Happy Mother's Day to you. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Thanks for what you do and who you are. Uh, it's, it's interesting because we both come, like, from big families, and we're just reflecting on some stories. And, and, and the best part about stories, especially in the realm of parenting, is parenting fails, you know, like this, the good stories are boring, but the, but the bad stories are really interesting. So we, we decided we were trying to come up with some good stories and, and one came to mind for you that I'll let you share it to your story. Yeah, we were talking about, so we're both the oldest of four. We both have two younger brothers and a sister. So being the oldest, uh, both of us has no, no issues in our marriage. We don't fight, try no. to get control. Nothing, it's hard to imagine. Like that. You know, it's hard to picture. <laughs> Anybody oldest in the family? Okay, quite a few of you. Okay, you got it. So, um, oldest of both of us, the oldest of four, and um, grew up in very different places. You grew up in Caledonia. I grew up in New Jersey. A lot of you probably know that. And um, grew up in, in an amazing house. Loved, you know, loved where we grew up. Had the privilege of being there my whole life until we, you and I, got married. And uh, we spent a lot of our time, the four of us and my mom. My mom was a stay-at-home mom with all four of us. Um, fun fact. My brother's birthday, my youngest brother's birthday was yesterday. And right now, until my birthday in July, we are um, 26, 27, 28, and 29 years old. So <laughs> blessings on my mom and dad. And that maybe contributes to the story a little bit. So we spent a lot of time down at our, our pool in the summers just to get energy out. And it was super fun. I'm so thankful that we, we had that. And I remember um, one particular day, so oldest in the family, super nervous to do basically anything, always afraid of things, didn't ride a bike till I was like 14 years old, you know, super just anxious about stuff. Any youngest siblings in the family? Okay, super deep, hungry penchant for danger and risk (laughs) and like want to just freak people out by doing things that you should not be doing defying the odds. That was my youngest, and kind of still is my youngest brother. His name is Blaze. Um, that's not my dog. That is my brother's name. I promise. And uh, so one, you know, we're down at the pool, and we're all just having a good time. My mom's keeping eyes on all of us. And Blaze decided he was going to surf on a boogie board in our pool, and probably had done it many times before. It's just like a fun thing to do as a kid, you know, to stand up and fall off seven, eight hundred times. <laughs> Um, but this particular time, Blaze needed some help balancing, so he decided he was going to hold on to the railing in the shallow end that you helps you know you get down into the pool. Uh, and my mom looked away for probably what was I don't know a split second. It didn't take long for him to lose balance and lose balance in the direction of the concrete on the side of the pool. And within, you know, uh, like I said, a half a second, our whole world changed as his face hit the concrete, his teeth hit the concrete, and uh, he's three years old. So whole big thing. Mom had to call the ambulance because she couldn't get all four of us in the car and and to the hospital at the right time and um, just started this journey. He was okay, but all of his teeth were gone and 
just started this whole process of him now having better teeth than anybody probably <laughs> in this room, let alone our family, because tens of thousands of dollars, I'm sure, have been put into it. But we were reflecting on that because I was seven at the time, seven or eight years old. And I just remember, what I remember so vividly is Blaze got to eat popsicles for every single meal. <laughs> and I was really mad about that because I had to eat my food. And he, I remember the, the Flintstones ones with the gummies in them. I was like, yeah. he gets to eat those for breakfast? Are you kidding me? And, you know, special attention and popsicles, all this stuff. But looking back now, I'm like, how traumatic that must have been for my mom and for my dad and, you know, just mm -hmm. having to call him and tell him what happened. Just the interesting that was my perspective for my whole life until maybe this last year where I looked at it from a different perspective and um, what my mom must have gone through in that moment when she turned around and saw what had happened. So right. perspectives make the story very different depending on how you're, <laughs> how you're looking at it. Popsicles versus, you know, your child losing his teeth. So, yeah. It's so true. Uh, it's funny because, like, you, you already know this. Like, if you're a parent, you get this. But the, the, the value on having a godly perspective, specifically in parenting, is, is almost like you can't calculate it fully. Because what's fascinating is that perspective seems to drive, and really does scientifically, drive almost every single behavior and decision we make as parents. Like, especially as a mom, I mean, your perspective on kids and parenting, on marriage, it really, really matters. It sets the tone. Maybe you were in houses or grew up in homes where you're, you had a, a mom who had a great perspective on life, and it, it was a great experience, and, and that was awesome. Or you grew up in a home where it was not a great experience, and your mom had a really tough perspective on life, and it just led into situations that you wish you hadn't got involved in, you know? So I just think, like, perspective is such a fascinating thing, and as you look at the scriptures, which we're going to do— like the scriptures are almost obsessed with our perspective. They're obsessed with how we think in our minds and how we perceive situations because it's out of that that actually flows behavior. It's out of that that flows decisions. Uh, and so I want to take you to a, a prison letter uh, called Philippians. It's literally this letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in Philippi, a church plant that he had been a part of and instrumental in. And he's writing to them, before we read what we're going to read, because it may be familiar to you, I want to just give you a little bit of a picture of where Paul is writing this letter, because his perspective is fascinating if you know where. So one of the, the goals of the gospel movement, one, as, as Christianity started to spread, they knew if, if Christianity was going to take root, take hold, that meant that we had to reach Rome. Rome is kind of the epicenter of culture. It's epicenter of government and art. It's an important place to be. And Paul knew, as kind of someone who's connected to the Roman citizens, like the government itself was like, I need to get to Rome. I need to get the gospel to Rome. Now, how the gospel gets to Rome is, is the weird part of the story. Paul gets to Rome in chains, which is not how he maybe have planned it. So Paul ends up shackled, literally, we just saying about the opposite of that, but literally like tied up, bound, and thrown into what is basically a glorified cave where it is dark, there's no plumbing, food is limited, there's no community with other prisoners even. It's literally this hole, and you can Google this today, even now if you want, if you're bored. You can go to Paul's <laughs> prison, Google Image Church, and find like the actual spot he probably would have been in. They, they would throw him down in this hole, 
And he would obviously have something to write with and capture some of these letters as he's in this small cave. Picture like the worst hotel room you've ever stayed in. Do you have it in your mind? Now double that, and that's closer, okay? We're getting a little bit closer to Paul's conditions. In these conditions, not at the Hampton Inn, this is what Philippians 1 verse 12 says. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, talking about being imprisoned and in this cave, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Verse 15, it's true. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Put where? prison. Put where? A dark, cold, dank Roman cave. Put there for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? This is a perspective question. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is Preach. This is Paul's goal in life, that Christ is preached. And this is how he concludes his thought. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. This is Paul's perspective we're getting a glimpse into in the letter to the Philippians. Chapter one is about his perspective and how he's picturing things. What I think is really interesting is like Paul's mission got done. He made it to Rome, but it was not the way he expected the gospel was preached and proclaimed, but it was not the way maybe he was longing for it to be proclaimed. And one of the ways that we can t- we're going to talk about this passage and what happens here is Paul's framing of his situation. Everyone just say the word frames with me. One, two, three. Frames. Like, like frames, like how we look at the situations of our life. Framing, it has to do with perspective. And it's really interesting. Here's what I've learned in my incredible year of parenting experience, Okay. And here's what Lindsay and I have learned together is that your frames can be highlighted in positive situations and in negative situations. Bad things can end up showing you, oh my gosh, God's at work in this frame. He's actually renewing my perspective. And really good situations can actually have the same effect. They can actually reveal, oh, okay, like this is not a good frame I have in my life. I've got some perspective issues that are off with me right now. And so we were talking about that. Like, how did that hit for you? Like, obviously you're a mom, I'm not. Like, how does this, how does this come to play in, in your parenting? Yeah, it's, that's a really good point that you brought up because I was, even as you were saying this, I didn't say this in first service, is things like uh, parenting or um, I was just thinking about COVID, like what the last two years have revealed about ourselves and in different ways, good and bad ways. Some of us grew closer to our family. Some of us had uh, oh my goodness, I don't know how I can live in a house with these people for, you know, five or six or seven months um, full time, you know, uh, a diagnosis, like you said, or an announcement, or even we had a lot of people at our church graduate from college yesterday, and a lot of people that are graduating high school in the next couple of weeks, too, which is so cool. So in those moments, too, it's what are the frames, how it's it's a shift in your routine, I guess, or a shift in your normal, what's what you consider to be normal that reveals some of those frames. So for us, the most recent one was having Lennon um, almost a year ago. She'll be a year 
old on May 24th. And the, the frame that we have talked through that I think we both struggle with because we're both the oldest type A people is uh, that my worth is defined in my success and success is defined by doing things that go the way I want them to, that I can control. And I wouldn't say that that was something I wasn't well aware of, but it's something I would say that I was good at doing, so I didn't really think it was much of a problem. Uh, and, and I thought that that would be not a problem when we had Lennon and that it would just kind of keep going that way, that we'd control things well and she would be controlled by me and we would live this... <laughs> Yeah, you can laugh, because it's ridiculous, right? It's totally ridiculous. And, and I have written here from day negative two, like not even day one of Lennon, day negative two, three, four, five, I realized that this was going to slowly eat away at me because it just wasn't going to happen. She was five days late. Um, she it took longer to arrive than we hoped. Once she arrived, she had some issues breathing, so she had to be on a breathing tube, so we didn't get to be with her for the first 24 hours or so. Um, you know, just then she was jaundiced, so she had to be under the, the uh, lights for a little bit. Just one by one, things were being taken away. She's okay and, and you know, wonderful, but in those moments of, I had this expectation of what it was gonna be like, just bit by bit, it started to not be what I thought it was going to be. And then we got home on a Wednesday and, you know, spent the day introducing her to family, and it was just really special. And the, the first night we went to go to sleep, you know, she's in our room with us. And um, I set an alarm because I thought, man, I just want to make sure she doesn't go too long sleeping before I wake <laughs> her up to feed her. Guess what? I didn't wake up to that. I didn't need that alarm, okay? Because she did not sleep. She slept maybe 45 minutes yeah. the whole night. Uh, and I remember we call, I called the hospital because they were so gracious. We had her at um, Metro or University, the new name, um, just up the road here. And... They said, call us if you have any questions. They were so kind and great. And I thought, I'm not going to need to call you. I got this <laughs> figured out. And I called at maybe 1 or 2 in the morning. And I remember saying, she's not sleeping. What's wrong with her? What is going on? And the lady's like, the nurse said, honey, she's three days old. Okay, She's not going to sleep for now. She's not going to sleep tomorrow night. She's not going to sleep the next night. And she was absolutely right. That's what happened. And so it was just this, this constant and every single thing that we did, just letting go this, this idea that I had to control it and that I was going to be the one that was going to make everything happen. And, um, quite honestly, that made the first couple months way harder for me than they needed to be, you know, cause we had people around us, we had support and love. And, but in my own brain, I needed, I needed to have control of this situation and I couldn't let it go. So mm -hmm. that made, that made that whole thing harder than it had to be because I, I couldn't get rid of that frame yeah. in my mind. I think you probably would agree with that in some yeah, ways. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the scientific term for what some of us butt up against in situations like that is cognitive bias, where literally you have a framing on your life. And sometimes that's self-imposed. Sometimes you have deceptions or lies or maybe good things that you have as frames over your world. And you literally see every single experience through those frames. Like it or not, you're doing this now. You're, you're perceiving, perceiving this moment through some of the lenses you have. But it also can occur when people put frames on you. Like maybe you grew up with a mom or a dad or a, or a leader or a pastor or a good friend or a boss who said things that hurt you and cut you and that has become a frame that now functions in your life almost subconsciously. You don't know it's there, but it's there. 
Or maybe it's a parent who's played that role and they've spoken things or, or given you even maybe indirect messaging about how you should be or what, what is success, what is failure, and you live with those frames. But having a godly perspective, like learning how in Christ to frame your mind to actually see the war won is fascinating because here's what I've learned in life. And all of you already know this. You can have two people who go through the exact same set of circumstances. One person comes out more joyful, healthy, happy, satisfied in life. And one person gets more bitter and angry and annoying to be around and resentful. How is that possible? Because they had different frames for what was going on. They had a different perspective on what was happening. This is why you know I know personally people who have gone through cancer and come out more mad, more cynical, more hurtful, more angry towards people. And I know people who've gone through cancer, some almost to the same degree, who've come out more happy, more content, more thankful for their kids, more thankful for life. And they're better people because their frames were different going through the exact same set of circumstances. The key is recognizing those frames and allowing God to do the work of either tearing them out and putting new ones in or reshaping the ones that are there. Now, what's really funny is like we have friends who in the stage of life we're in who are also having kids, also going through the same journey. And and we're like, hey, we have no advice for you, but we will pray for you. (laughs) We we have no idea what we're doing either, but we'll definitely pray for you. We know you need God's help. But we'd overheard one of our friends was talking about a conversation she had with a coworker, which I thought was kind of funny about like how this plays into perspective. Perspective and also how you're viewing your situation, like you said, cognitive bias based on the the realities of your life, where you've been in your life and the people and and all the situations. And she said, um, she said, oh man, you know, she just had a a baby. She said, it is just, it's the most beautiful thing ever. She's like, this is, this must be what heaven is like. And I, it's so true in so many ways, but in the first six weeks, I thought, if this is what heaven is like, I would like to um, reevaluate my life decisions. <laughs> if I'm on my way to this for the rest of my eternity, um, I <laughs> would like to think about God some alternative options. Because that is maybe not what I signed up for forever. That's not what the Bible says heaven is like. So, uh, but yeah, it's it's just a funny it's a funny thing. Neither is wrong. It's just how you you view it based yeah. on your own situations. Right. And we were talking too, I mean, you know this, if you've been on a parenting journey at all, or even just as a, as a kid growing up in a house, like what's really fascinating is the Bible does not just talk about like, like looking back and trying to fix the past. It, it talks about the fact that you really can, with God's help, pre-frame your future. Like you have a decision, even before you, the situations you face right now, you can actually say, God, the next time X happens, I can, I can respond this way. Like, here's the reality. And I hate to say this on Mother's Day. I'm just going to say it. You cannot control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond. All of us know that. All of us are internal. And yet we can spend hours, days, seasons of life trying to control things that are not in our control. And we don't control the thing that is in some way in our control. This is how you win the war in your mind. You allow Jesus in, you allow the spirit to reframe your mind. And we were talking about this, like how to pre-frame your future because you may be operating right now with the frame, I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not a good mom. I'll never be a good mom. 
I'll never be a good spouse. I'll never be a good employee. And, and you operate under, or I should be happy when I have a newborn. People are saying I should be happy, but I feel depressed. Like you may have those frames at work in your mind too. And what happens is Paul is saying, you do not have to live in bondage to those frames. God actually can give you a new frame. <laughs> he can set you free by the Holy Spirit. He can actually give you a renewed mind that doesn't operate the way you used to operate. And that to me is the great hope of, of what we're talking about. Especially with Paul, because when you think about, we, we're looking at his external situation, right. right? He wasn't in prison and now he is in prison. And, but the Bible says he was joyful and we're reading this, oh, I consider it gain. And you're thinking, what on earth? I mean, if we could go around the room and say, say the situations that we're in, say the relational issues or the financial issues or the, you know, X, Y, Z, you name it. You would all have, I would have, you would have very good reason to be angry or bitter or sad or scared um, or rejected. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So why, what about Paul makes this actually real and not just kind of kitschy or, you know, looks good on a wall, uh, on a poster in, above your kitchen sink or whatever that might be? Uh, Thinking about where Paul used to be, like you said, renewing of your mind, thinking about where Paul used to be, if you go back in the Gospels and you read Paul, who used to be Saul, spent a good portion of his life in leadership killing Christians and persecuting them, pulling them out of their context and torturing them and um, doing the, the very thing that he now is, is subject to. So his external situation kind of got dramatically worse. Okay, he was in leadership and now he's in prison, but internally he was lost and now he's found and he has the truth of the gospel and the hope of salvation and the hope of Jesus in his heart. So that's where his reframing comes from. And I think that's an important, because when you look at it from the outside, you think, okay, Paul's kind of crazy thinking that where he was and where he is now is better. Like, I don't really know if I agree with that, but what he's doing and what he's doing to do that is he's remembering, he's looking back and seeing where he was versus where he is now. And Jesus talks about this all throughout the gospels. We look at Jesus's life in Mark eight, he's talking to his disciples who he followed, followed him his whole ministry time. And they've just gone on like a tour of miracles. You know, Jesus has raised people from the dead. He's fed the people. He's healed the sick. He's turned water into wine. I mean, you name it, he's done it. And they get on a boat to go across the water to go to the other side. The disciples have all seen all of these with their eyes. Okay, they're not reading about it thousands of years later. It's like we are. They were in the room. They watched it happen. And still they're having this conversation of, well, how are we going to get food? And the water starts to become choppy. Well, how are we going to calm this storm? And Jesus says, he says, do you not remember what just happened five minutes ago? Do you not remember? Did you not see? Did you not experience the dead person opening his eyes? Did you not see that water go from clear to wine? What, what about this situation is not registering with you? Remember, reframe your perspective by remembering what I've done and remember the, what I've done in your life and what I've done for those around me. I am a God of miracles and I can do these things. Mm -hmm. Reframing is so important when you think about it through that context. Right. And that, that's kind of a key, real simple truth. Like in order to reframe, you have to remember like you cannot detach those two things. You can't just say, all right, I'm on this reframing project, me and Jesus, I'm going to fix my mind. I'm going to win the war by myself. Some of the way, easiest way to begin this journey, to begin what Paul learned. I mean, how many times did Paul talk about Thanksgiving and gratitude and rejoicing always and 
praying continually, even when circumstances are adverse and hard, because Paul had a, a fixed mind on what God had also done for him in the past. He, he was able to look back. Like what's fascinating, and we talk about pre-framing your future and stuff, like Paul did this. This was not the only time Paul was in a tough situation. Like Paul was in prison multiple times. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was stoned. Paul was beaten. Paul was harassed verbally. He was kicked out of like his, the groups of friends he was a part of. Like this guy had a very difficult life because of the gospel. Yet he is the one writing what we just read. He's the one saying rejoice always. Like you can continually be in a position of thanksgiving because in order to truly reframe your mind, you have to remember, you have to look back. And the second thing I think is really important, this gets more to practical, is when we look back like at the last year or so, there were pivotal moments where we had to, not wanted to, had to reach out to other people. Because when you face some of those dark wars in your mind, when you're facing some of those lies, when you're facing deception, when you're trying to truly honor God, not just with your body, but with your mind, you are going to need other people. It is not optional. You are going to need other people. There's a reason we gather in a room like this every single weekend. There's a reason people get here hours before you ever got here and sacrifice and give, give themselves to make stuff like this happen because we need other people. There were texts that we had to send last summer when it was dark. There were calls we had to make. There were tears we had to shed. There was people we needed to just come sit and hang out with us to remind us you're not insane. <laughs> you're not insane. You are going through something a lot of people have gone through and you are not alone. But if you want to reframe your mind, it cannot be a you and God self-improvement project because it will not work. That may work on your house. It does not work on your mind. And I think that is one of the most powerful things you can pull out of Paul's words here. Uh, the, the final thing, and then when we want to give you kind of a next step for this is just remembering sometimes the most powerful way to see God's goodness is to look back. Uh, in, in the book, Winning the War in Your Mind, uh, Craig Groeschel talks about God's collateral goodness. Uh, God's collateral goodness in your life. I think about this uh, last December, uh, the week of Christmas, I broke my finger, which seems like a really insignificant thing, but it is the most annoying injury I can ever picture because you do everything with your fingers, uh, fingers, turns out. And it was so annoying. Anytime Lennon would like pull on it, I was like, oh, I want to give you away so bad. <laughs> I didn't. She's here again somewhere. But um, it was like this constant and it was painful. I did not like it. I had to make time in the schedule to go to all these appointments and x-rays, all this kind of stuff. I look back now, it's May. It's, it's been healed for a couple months. Now. I look back and say, wow, God, you actually had a way of using that for my good. You had a way of making me slow down because I was injured. You had a way of helping me to empathize with people who are going through difficult circumstances. You had a way of putting me in hospital rooms and waiting rooms I never would have been in had you not allowed my finger to get broken. I had to depend on my family more and my friends more. I, I, I was just more in touch with God because I had needs. I couldn't even drive normal, like all these weird things. But I look back and say, I am actually thankful in a weird way that, that that happened because I saw God's goodness in a way I would not have seen if everything was perfect. And when you look back, sometimes that's what it takes to truly reframe. It's just to remember. It's to look back and take inventory of your life and say, yep, that actually was incredibly dark and broken. And look what God has done through it. 
look at the story he is telling now. And I don't know exactly where you're at. I don't know the, the frames you come into. I don't know the circumstances you face, but here's what I know. What Paul says is true of him can be true of you, that you can rejoice. You can reframe. It's not up to you by yourself to sit there and just work hard or renew your mind. That's the work God wants to do in you, in your life, in your mind. And that's ultimately how you win the war. And so a real easy next step we're gonna take together. Cause you may be like, uh, okay, I, I'm buying what you're selling. I have no idea how to do it though. There's hope for you. Cause I don't really fully know how to do it either. But here's what it starts with. You look through any of, of Paul's letters, as we said, he always has encouraged him to look back and look, like Lindsay said, the disciples, every single disciple of Jesus has to do this work. It's not options. It, it's, it's like the good work God wants to do. It's to look back. I wanna encourage you. We're gonna take a couple seconds and then we're gonna sing. I wanna actually encourage you, cause I don't know, maybe it was a great week. Maybe it was a really hard, dark week. But I want you, again, not sugarcoating it, be real but to look back and say, God, where have you been good this week? Where have you been good? Again, that may surprise you, the areas of life where he actually has shown up this week. And you look back like, oh my gosh, I, I didn't see that as a good, but you're turning it for good. Or it's a moment of celebration. It's a graduation, it's an achievement, it's a, it's a new relationship, it's a new job. And you get to say, thank you for your goodness in this week. But I wanna encourage you to look back and then we're gonna pray and then we're gonna worship. So let's take that time. Let's, let's go before him. So Jesus, thank you that only you have a way of turning circumstances that feel really good into pure joy, that look really hard and really dark and turn it into something beautiful and worth going through and, and, and adding value in some way to our spiritual lives. Thank you in my own story, just the fact that you this last week protected uh, my brother and I on the, on the road for 30 hours of driving, you kept us safe. Thank you for your goodness there. And I pray God, as we do this spiritual inventory, as we look back, would you remind us that we are not slaves to the frames that we carry, but you actually have a way of renewing our mind. And it's when we open ourselves and surrender to you that you do your best work. And so that's what we do. Together as a community, we ask Holy Spirit come, help us to truly taste and see your goodness. Help us to open our hearts, open our, our soul to you, knowing that we cannot do the work on our own. You actually invite us to bring weakness and frailty and our own fragile self, and you exchange that for strength and beauty and glory. Help us, Lord. We need you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.